You're listening to Outlaws and Gunslingers, the only podcast covering all of America's infamous criminals, from the Wild West to the Mafia, all the way up to the ruthless street gangs of today. Brought to you exclusively by the Creative Control Network. Here are your hosts, the Mouthy Michiganders, Bang and Dang. Back now, laws and gunslingers, bang and dang here for part two of the infamous, mysterious, and crazy DB Cooper case. In part one, we took a look at the actual crime, him jumping, and uh, is that a crime? Him jumping from a plane? The crime of him hijacking <laughs> the plane and uh, st- stealing money, I guess you could say, and then jumping right. out of the plane, and then the uh, the uh, search for any evidence outside, and eventually finding money, <laughs> and they found. Uh, um, a placard that said how to open the aft door outside, and that's the only two uh, physical evidence outside of the plane, but on the plane they found his clip-on tie and uh, his tie, or his tie clip, I should say. And then, uh, wasn't his sunglasses too or something? Maybe. Right, right, right. either or. A little bit of evidence, nothing much, and then uh, they bungled the search area like twice. Oh, no. It, was, it turns out he was actually Somewhere else. More over this area. The pilot's like, oh, I should have said something earlier, but pretty sure we didn't right. go this route. We probably should have went somewhere else. Right. Uh, and the FBI has given up the case and gave all the information on to the public. So, <laughs> like, come on, guys. What you got? I don't know what you guys got. And uh, we ended where between 71 and 2016, the FBI processed more than a thousand serious suspects, including assorted publicity speakers and deathbed confessors. And uh, we're going to run through a pretty lengthy list of them right now. Um, starting with Ke- Ke- Keter, Kenneth Peter Christensen. In 2003, Minnesota resident Lyle Christensen watched a television documentary about the Cooper hijacking. He, he became convinced that it convinced. <laughs> he became convinced that his late brother, Kenneth, who lived from 1926 to 94, was Cooper. After repeated futile attempts to convince the FBI and then the author and film director, Nora Ephron, uh, whom he hoped would make a movie about the case. He contacted, he contacted a private investigator in New York city, New York city in 2010. The detective skip Porteous published a book postulating that Christensen was the hijacker following year. An episode of the history series, Brad Melcher's decoded also summarized the circumstantial evidence linking Christensen to the Cooper case. Yeah. Uh, this guy's been talked about on many, 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 many shows. Many most recently. I'm pretty sure, uh, expedition unknown, uh, Watched that not too long ago, actually. Christensen enlisted in the Army, 1944. Sister Christensen enlisted in. Uh, and was trained as a paratrooper. Okay. The war had ended by the time he was deployed in 1945, but he made occasional training jumps while stationed in Japan with occupation forces in the late 40s. After leaving the Army, he joined Northwest Orient in 1954 as a mechanic in the South Pacific and subsequently became a flight attendant and then a purser. Christensen was 45 years old at the time of the hijacking, but he was shorter, uh, thinner, and lighter than eyewitness descriptions of D.B. Cooper. So he worked at the airline that D.B. Cooper hijacked, but it was in the South Pacific as a mechanic. Um, 45 years old, time of the hijacking, shorter. I don't know, but he was a paratrooper, but... Thinner. D.B. Cooper preferred... He didn't want um, military parachutes, so mm-hmm. 
Right. I don't know if that works out. Christensen smoked, as did the hijacker, and displayed a fondness for bourbon, as did Cooper. Mm. Schaffner told a reporter that photos of Christensen fit her memory of the hijacker's appearance more closely than those of other suspects she had been shown, but could not conclusively identify him. Okay. Despite the publicity generated by Porteus's book and the 2011 television documentary, the FBI stands by its position that Christensen cannot be considered a prime suspect. Can't. It cites the poor match to eyewitness physical descriptions, a level of skydiving expertise above that predicted by their suspect profile. Mm-hmm. Right. And a complete absence of direct incriminating evidence. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't think the match to eyewitness physical descriptions means anything because people don't really remember. Right. Well, they're like, well, let's, what's next on the list? Well, we got a Mr. Bryant Cofelt, who is known as Jack. Oh, Jack. Uh, he was born in 1917, perished in 1975. He was a con man, ex-convict, obviously, and purported government informant who claimed to have been the chauffeur and confidant of Abraham Lincoln's last undisputed descendant, great-grandson Robert Todd Lincoln Beckwith. Wait, Abraham Lincoln doesn't have any more uh, descendants in his family? Undisputed. How does a bloodline, I guess, Robert Todd Lincoln Beckwith didn't have a uh, son, huh? Must not. Couldn't carry on that Lincoln name. Right. 1972, he began claiming he was D.B. Cooper. Yeah, and attempted through an <laughs> intermediary a former cellmate named James Brown to sell his story. Oh, shit. Is that, right. is that the James oh, Brown? Get, up, get on up. He did beat his wife and shit, didn't he? Didn't, right. he, didn't James Brown go to prison? Mm. Pretty sure it was in like the 90s, though. Yes. Yeah. Sooner, yeah. Or sooner. Later. Right. <laughs> or later. Right. <laughs> he said he landed near Mount Hood, about 50 miles southeast of Ariel. Okay. Injuring himself and losing the ransom money in the process. Photos of Cofelt bear a resemblance to the composite drawings. Although he was in his mid-50s in 1971, he was reportedly in Portland on the day of the hijacking and sustained leg injuries around that time, which were consistent with a skydiving mishap. I don't. Who cares if he was in his mid-50s? Some people are in their mid-50s and, and look they, like they're in the mid-40s. Like they're in mid-40s. I don't think right? that has anything to do with anything. Cofelt's uh, account was reviewed by the FBI, which concluded that it that it differed in several details from information that had not been made public and was therefore a fabrication. Mm. What are these details, FBI? I thought everything right. was public. All right. Uh, Brown, undeterred, continued peddling the story long after Colfelt died in 1975, and multiple media venues, including the CBS news program 60 Minutes, considered and rejected it. Ooh. Oh, you know when CBS does. <laughs> oh, James Brown was like, man, this guy was him. Mm. Trying to make some money off of Trying old. Trying to make some money off of old uh, Colfelt. Right. Jackie. Mm. Well, it's not Jackie. Oh, moving on to the next suspect. Hey, well, this guy got the same last name, L.D. Cooper. Oh, L.D. Which lived from 1931 to 1999. Which lived. <laughs> right. <laughs> he was a leather worker and a Korean war veteran. Was proposed as a suspect July 2011 by his very own niece, Marla Cooper. Marla. She's like, FBI, I think my uncle is D.B. Cooper. It was actually Al D. Cooper. Right. As an eight-year-old, she recalled Cooper and another uncle planning something very mischievous involving the use of expensive walkie-talkies at a grandmother's house in Sisters, Oregon, 150 miles southeast of Portland. Mm-hmm. Eight years old. Mm-hmm. Walkie-talkies, Portland. Come on. Eight years old. Right. And the next day, Flight 305 was hijacked, and though the uncle's uh, ostensibly... The next day. 
She right. knew the exact date right. where they had this conversation. Get right. the hell out of here. And though the uncles ostensibly were turkey uh, hunting, <laughs> supposedly, L.D. Cooper came home wearing a bloody shirt. The result, he said, of an auto accident. Later, she said her parents came to believe that L.D. Cooper was the hijacker. She also recalled that her uncle, who died in 99, was obsessed with the Canadian comic book hero Dan Cooper uh, and had one of his comic books thumbtacked to his wall, Aww. although he was not a skydiver or paratrooper. August 2011, New York Magazine published an alternative witness sketch, reportedly based on a description by Flight 305 eyewitness Robert Gregory. Where were you, Where Robert? Robert? Yeah, depicting, uh, <laughs> <laughs> depicting horn-rimmed sunglasses. A russet. Russet? It's like russet potatoes. Russet potatoes. A russet-colored uh, suit jacket with wide lapels. Lapels. And marceled hair. <laughs> what the hell? All right, this is 2011 there, Robert. Why don't right. you uh, use words that are, like, current? Yeah. He had a dirty brown jacket on. <laughs> right. With wide uh, lapels. I guess we still use that word today. <laughs> lapels, man. Labels. <laughs> uh, the article notes that L.D. Cooper had wavy hair that looked marceled. The FBI announced that no fingerprints had been found on a guitar strap made by L.D. Cooper. One week later, they added that his DNA did not match the partial DNA profile obtained from the hijacker's tie, but acknowledged that there's no certainty that the hijacker, jacker, the hijacker was the source of the organic material obtained from the tie. They don't know. That's all stupidity. Right. Get the hell out of here. FBI. Well, that brings us to Barbara Dayton, who lived from 1926 to 2002, was a rec- recreational pilot and University of Washington librarian who was born Robert Dayton, uh, served in the U.S. Merchant Marine and then the Army during World War II. After discharge, he worked with explosives in the construction field and aspired to be a professional airline career, hmm. um, but could not obtain a commercial license to Sorry. fly a uh, said plane. So Sorry, Barbara. Maybe, maybe that's well, he said it didn't have a, a, uh, a grudge. So it can't be that. Mm-hmm. You can't attain a commercial pilot's license, so that's not a grudge. All right. Well, Dayton underwent gender reassignment surgery. Of course, he did in 1969 and changed his name to Barbara. They had that back then? I guess. she claimed, He claimed to have staged the Cooper hijacking two years later, disguised as a man, in order to get back. Get back at the airline Wait. street. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, there's no grudge. No, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. All right. Claimed to have staged a Cooper hijacking two years later, disguised as a man. You can't be disguised as a man if you're a man. <laughs> right. And to get back at the airline industry and FAA for not granting him his license when he, I just said that there's the no, lady was like, there a grudge. He's like, no grudge. No grudge. I don't have a grudge. No, not against you. It's just what do you say? It's I don't grudge. have a grudge against this airline. I just have a grudge. Against well, this. against the airline. So maybe, yeah, the grudge was against the industry and the FFA, uh, FAA. Wasn't the airline itself. Right. Hmm. Well, airline industry. Right. The FAA. So we lied then. We lied. If, if, it, if it is this Robert Dayton or whatever the hell the name is. Right. He was like, if it, <laughs> they think they did this because the insurmountable rules and conditions have prevented him from becoming an airline pilot. So they're like, mm, I can see I can see this guy being a little uh, mad. Dayton said like, that, oh, forgive me that the. uh rules and conditions to become a airline pilot are a little too uh, tough for you to get. Sorry. Right. You want me to relax the rules so you can fly? No, can't do it, bud. Uh, Dayton Jeez. said 
I mean, she did have, he did have gender reassignment surgery already. So, you know, he's one of the woke ones. Right. And want everything handed to him, just like today. So, exactly. 1969 as well, too. That was the movement of the douchebags. Dayton said that the ransom money was hidden in a cistern near Woodburn. Uh, hidden in a cistern? <laughs> <laughs> a suburban area south of Portland. So he put it in a cistern near Woodburn. It would burn in a cistern. <laughs> right. But eventually recanted the entire story. He's like, you remember that story I told you about me being D.B. Cooper? <laughs> it ain't true. <laughs> nope. No, just about, remember when I said I was a girl? <laughs> Why are you telling me this now? Well, I just learned that hijacking oh. charges could still be brought up. Oh, sorry, all you wokesters out right. there. If you're offended. Not really remember well. I told you that I was really remember, a female? Remember when I told you I was a girl? I lied about that, too. Well, guess what? We're supposed to trust the science, and science says that it's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> science says that was a lie. Right. The FBI has never commented publicly on Dayton, who died in 2002. So Dayton was like, I did this. I'm D.B. Cooper. Mm, I'm the first transgender D.B. Cooper. Wait, wait. There still can be charges? You'd never hey, believe this. Just kidding. <laughs> I thought because I'm trans. Joke. Right. I can get away with um, anything. Sooner or later. Well, it wasn't Barbara slash Robert. Oh. William Pratt Gossett, who lived from 1930 to 2003, was a Marine Corps, Army, and Army Air Force veteran who saw action in Korea and Vietnam. Ooh. His military experience included jump training and wilderness survival. Oh, nice. Okay. Gossett was known to be obsessed with the Cooper hijacking. All right. Why would you be obsessed about your own hijacking when you know every detail? <laughs> Right. I mean, I guess some people are. Obsessed. And he's going to be like, obsessed with it because he was in the Air Force. Like some criminals and killers, though, are obsessed with the news coverage they get of themselves and right. like that stuff. So, I mean, I could see that. According to Galen Cook, who was a lawyer that collected information related to Gossett for years, Gossett once showed his sons a key to a Vancouver, British Columbia safety deposit box, which he claimed contained the long missing ransom money. The FBI has no direct evidence in place. Wouldn't they know that? Wouldn't they? Have known about the safe they could have went into the safety deposit box easily. Like, you know, we're here for William Gossett's uh, safety deposit box. Can right. you open it for us, please? Right. The FBI has no direct evidence implicating Gossett and cannot even reliably place him in the Pacific Northwest at the time of the hijacking. There is not one link to the DB Cooper case, says Special Agent Carr, other than the statements he made to someone. You know what? I'm not one for uh, charging like storytellers and all this stuff, but when it's stuff like this. And you got all these idiots coming up and you're w- wasting our tax dollars on all these people and they're they're lying. They should get charged with something. You know what I mean? They should have to pay back the time that the agents put in on their stupidity because we're paying for that shit. Man, you can sit there and tell everybody in the whole world that you did it. But once everybody comes and knocking, you say, nope, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not me. I lied. <laughs> what did you just say? Huh? Start charging people for making up stories. They do, isn't that false? That's filing a false report. Well, they're not reporting right. themselves, though. They're just saying it. It's a story. You can't you can't charge somebody for lying, right? But you can charge somebody for. Well, I don't know. They don't even charge people for falsely accusing people of rape. So the only way they can charge them if it's a sworn statement that he wrote right. down inside the FBI thing, which I'm sure none. Of, well, all these statements they're getting from people that have already dead, already been dead. Right. So it's true. Besides the barber chick or guy or whatever, and he was immediately like, yeah, I'm just kidding. Right. Trying to get, you know, some fame and fortune on that shit. Mm. Mm. Moving on lists. We go to John Emil. Speaking of a list. <laughs> hey, speaking of list, John Emil list, 1925 to 2008. 
was an accountant in World War II and Korean War veteran who murdered his wife. Jeez. Oh, no. His three teenage children. Oh, geez. And 85-year-old mother. Oh, my. In Westfield, New Jersey. I don't think that's D.B. Cooper. 15 days before the Cooper hijacking. Withdrew $200,000 from his mother's bank account and disappeared. So why the hell would he need another two hundred grand? He already had a million sitting right there. Right. His mom was freaking uh, stacked, huh? Stacked. And she had money in the bank. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> uh, he came to attention of the Cooper Task Force due to the time of his disappearance. Multiple matches to the hijacker's description and the reasoning that a fugitive accused of mass murder has nothing to lose. After his capture in 1989, List admitted to murdering his family but denied any involvement in the Cooper hijacking. If you admit to murdering the family, that's the worst crime in the whole damn right. world. Why would you not I be like... I don't think the Cooper stuff's going to matter at this right. point. Right. He's going to be like, hell yeah, I took that damn money. <laughs> Jumped off that plane like a pro. Although his name continues to appear in Cooper articles and documentaries, no substantial evidence implicates him, and the FBI no longer considers him. It sucks. Okay, that was a worthless uh, suspect there. Theodore Ernest Mayfield, 1935 to 2015, was a Special Forces veteran, pilot, competitive skydiver. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Um, and skydiving instructor who served time in 1994 for negligent homicide after two of his students died when their parachutes failed to open. How's that? Uh, so they sued that guy for the parachutes not working. Mm, come on. They didn't sue him. He served time for negligent homicide. I'm assuming he didn't check the parachutes or maintain them properly. I'm assuming something That's like that. Possible. Didn't, yeah. uh, later, he was found indirectly responsible for 13 additional skydiving deaths due, geez, oh my. due to faulty equipment and training. Yeah, there we go. This criminal record also included armed robbery and transportation of stolen aircraft. Oh, geez. He was even stealing aircraft and transportation. Oh. In 2010, he was sentenced to three years probation for piloting at a plane 26 years after losing his pilot's license and rigging certificates. Really? This guy, huh? Oh, oh Teddy. Oh, Teddy. Mayfield was suggested repeatedly as a suspect early in the investigation, according to the FBI agent Ralph Himmelsbach, who knew Mayfield from a prior dispute at a local airport. Yeah, he's like, we're ruling him out. Based partly on the fact that he called him was back less than two hours after flight 305 landed in Reno to volunteer advice on standard skydiving practices and possible landing zones. So why would they even go and even check this guy out? Him was back to Reno instantly. Once they, that name came up, Mayfield, no, I talked to him. I talked to that dude when the plane landed in Reno. Is that where it landed in Reno to uh, fuel, refuel and all that? Refuel was supposed to right. before or after he jumped. Um, so how does that rule him out, though? He could have easily landed somewhere and called him. Two hours after the flight landed in Reno, so which means he would have had at least right. three to four hours that he had before, when he had jumped. So and call them just to call cover just his tracks. To cover his tracks, right? Yeah, I should call this guy. And be like, I can lend a lend some of my knowledge of skydiving to mm. him. Just to throw him off, right? Two thousand six. Two amateur researchers named Daniel Vorak and Matthew Myers proposed Mayfield as a suspect once again asserting that they had assembled a convincing circumstantial case. They're like, we got it. They suggested that Mayfield called Himmelsbeck not to offer advice, but to establish an alibi. Hey, there we go. And they challenged Himmelsbeck's conclusion that Mayfield could not possibly have been, had found a phone in time to call the FBI less than four hours after jumping into the wilderness at night. Well, I don't know if he jumped. All depends on how big that wilderness was. Wait, they don't make any sense here. Yeah. They suggest that Mayfield called him not to offer advice, but establish an alibi. And then they challenge Himmelsbach's conclusion that he, oh, they challenged that, that he that, could not possibly right. have found a phone. That's what I'm saying. That's he what I just jumped said. in the wilderness. How, you're not going to get out of the wilderness. Four hours? Of course you could. You know, how big is a wilderness? 
knows if he had outside help. Yeah, it's completely possible that he could have ran uh, out of the wilderness in four hours. So to a phone, though. Yeah, why not? Phones weren't just on the side of on, were they inside of roads in the middle of nowhere back then? Who says he was in the middle of nowhere? Well, if you're in a wilderness, once you come out, you're going to be in the middle of nowhere for a little while. Who says that? Tell me it's not. He didn't have like he knew. Obviously, we already established that he knew uh, the terrain and where he was above by the sky, so he would have immediately known where the nearest town was. Could have ran that way, right? <clears throat> or else, who knows? He could have directed his parachute as far into the wilderness. I mean, you could float on a parachute, float so maybe he floated while. near a town or something. Well, well, all depends on uh, that wooded area they're at, though. It could be miles over over there in Oregon and all that, dude. They're miles. I mean, I guess, but it's plausible. There's no, there's no evidence strictly saying he couldn't do it. Either or, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Did he make it to a payphone in time? Who knows? Mayfield denied any involvement. Oh, he denied denies involvement. Oh my. And repeated a previous assertion that FBI called him called him five times while the hijacking was still in progress to ask about parachutes, local skydivers, and skydiving techniques. Uh, Himmelsbach said the FBI never called Mayfield, by the way. Hmm. Mayfield further charged that Doverick and Myers asked him to play along with your claim and we'll make a lot of money. Hey, but Doverick and Myers call, called any inference, any inference, uh, inference of collusion a blatant lie. The FBI offered no comment beyond Himmelsbach's original statement that Mayfield, who died in 2015, was ruled out as a suspect early on. Sickening how stupid this FBI is. Yeah, I mean, well... Maybe the other guys were just out for money, and they knew. Which brings us to uh, who now? Uh, Richard McCoy Jr. Mm-hmm. It kind of looks like the picture, somewhat. Richard McCoy Jr.? I mean, Richard I, McCoy I Jr., maybe. He got the shorter eyes together and all that. Anyway, he lived yeah, from... His face is a little longer than the uh, right sketch. He but. lived on Earth for a short period of time. He did. 1942 1974. Tragically 32 year old. Was an army veteran who served two tours of duty in Vietnam. First as a demolition expert and later with the Green Beret ooh, as a helicopter pilot. Mm. Okay. After his military service he became a warrant officer in Utah National Guard. An avid recreational skydiver with aspirations, he said, of becoming a Utah State Trooper. Oh, I mean, come on, you can't be aspirations of becoming a trooper and want to rob somebody, can you? Well, on April 7th, 1972, he staged the best known of the so called copycat. Also, oh, he's a copycat hijacker. Mm-hmm. Copycat hijackings. Uh, he boarded United Airlines Flight 855, uh, which was a Boeing 27 with, with F stairs, F-stairs. just like the other one, okay. in Denver and brandishing what later proved to be a paperweight resembling a hand grenade. And an unloaded handgun, he demanded four parachutes and $500,000. After delivery of the money and parachutes at San Francisco International Airport, McCoy ordered the aircraft back into the sky and bailed out over Provo, Utah, leaving behind his handwritten hijacking instructions and his fingerprints on a magazine he had been reading. Uh, Hmm. Wow. So he made it. Well, he was arrested on the 9th of April with the ransom cash in his possession. After trial and conviction received... Wow, judge made a uh, judge made a uh, example. Yep, that's the <laughs> word. Example out of this guy, forty-five years. Forty-five. Two years later, he escaped from the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary with several accomplices by crashing a garbage truck through the main gate. How they get the garbage truck? That poor garbage truck driver's probably not living or tied up somewhere, right? Or he was in on it, right? 
tracked down Obviously. three months later in Virginia Beach. They found him in Virginia Beach, though. Hey, he was living his best life. Right. McCoy was killed in a shootout, though. <laughs> <laughs> With the FBI agents. All right. For them. In their 91 book, D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy. Mm. Yeah, was he the real McCoy? No. You think so? The parole, op- parole officer, Bernie Rhodes, and former FBI agent Russell Calamy, or Calamy, asserted that uh, they had identified McCoy as Cooper. They cited obvious similarities in the two hijackings, claims by McCoy's family that the tie and mother of Pearl tie clip left on the plane belonged to McCoy, and McCoy's own refusal to admit or deny that he was Cooper. A proponent of their claim was the FBI agent who killed McCoy, said, when I shot Richard McCoy, he said, I shot D.B. Cooper at the same time. Mm, Did he, Come on. The dude was, D.B. Cooper was described as calm and uh, right. all that stuff. Like, he's going to be getting in a shootout and escaping from prison. Right. And all yeah. that shit. Get out this of here, guy dude. kept a low profile. Right. Come on now. Guarantee it. I shot D.B. Cooper at the same time. If he, if he did survive it, he calmly walked into town and got a hotel room at a little tiny, little, you know, and chilled. Right. And did nothing for me for a week because he hurt himself. Ran to a tree. Probably more. Right. I don't know what the hell he did because. Chilled for a while. I don't think any of that money has. Ever been recovered. Flagged as uh, being spent anywhere. So Unless he did get picked up somewhere. They said, no matter how long you wait for 24 hours, right? I'll show up sooner or later. You just wait there. He shows up on that road and he gets on and he goes. Who knows? Or he's still hanging in a tree to this day somewhere. Could be. Although there is no reasonable doubt that McCoy committed the Denver hijacking, the FBI does not consider him a suspect in the Cooper case because of mismatches in age and description. See, that means nothing. Right. A level of skydiving skill well above that thought to be possessed Which by that. means nothing. All right. And credible evidence that McCoy was in Las Vegas on the day of the Portland Okay, hijacking. that means something. <laughs> that means a little something. Credible evidence, I guess. And at home in Utah that very day, mm. having Thanksgiving dinner oh, Jesus. Was, with his uh, family. Yeah, it wasn't him. Get out of here. Get out of here. Wait a minute. They have credible evidence that McCoy was in Las Vegas on the day of Portland, right? But they say he was at home in Utah the day after. So he was in Vegas the day before Thanksgiving and went home on into Utah for Thanksgiving. And how they have credible, credible evidence for this? Maybe flight logs, tickets, something, I'm assuming, right? Got to be. Something like that. Right. Well, move us on to Sheridan <laughs> Peterson, who uh, 1926 to 2021 just passed away. Served in the U.S. Marine Corps during World War II and was later employed as a technical editor at Boeing, based in Seattle. Investigators took an interest in him as a suspect soon after the hijacking or skyjacking because of his experience as a smoke jumper and love of taking physical risk, as well as a similar appearance and age to the Cooper description. Mm. I don't know. I mean, mm. his forehead's kind of big, like the the drawing. His nose is actually pretty similar. Everything's similar. His eyes. You can tell how the, the, the glasses would be crooked like they are because look at his ears. It's true. They made the ears seem like they're crooked. His mouth, I guess, would be. Yeah, I mean, it's got pretty similarities. Yeah, a, his face is not as thin, but. He's older, though. Uh, similar age, 44. Cooper was said to be in his mid-40s. They got pictures of him at that age. Who? That Cooper? Guy. Sheridan? Yeah. That's it right there, right? Well, Peterson often teased the media about whether he was really D.B. Cooper. Entrepreneur Eric 
Ulis, who spent years investigating the crime, said he was 98% convinced that Peterson was Cooper. Yeah. But when pressed by FBI agents, Peterson insisted he was in Nepal at the time of the skyjacking. He died in 2021 with no further um, oh. no further um, so, evidence or anything. Wow. So we get another FBI sketch of D.B. Cooper from 1971, and they're comparing it to, this time, a 1970 Army ID picture of Robert Rackshaw. So we see that. I mean, if that's a different sketch that isn't commonly the one, but right. um, same hairdo. Yeah. So they keep on changing the sketch to make oh, it. No, look. there's only two. The one. All right. This one and the other one. Uh, so. I mean, I guess, but I mean, anybody can look like. Well, I mean, I could put a picture of me up there and with the little hairdo and the same hairdo right. and all that stuff, and it would kind of look similar. And now our uh, FBI has to uh, take a look at Robert Wesley Rackshaw. Straw. Rackstraw. And they just will recently died as well. He lived from 1943, 2019. And the FBI will find out that he was a retired pilot, ex-convict who served on an army helicopter crew and other units. Darren, you guessed it. Vietnam. He came to the attention of Cooper task force in February, 1978 after he was arrested in Iran and deported to the United States to face explosive possession and check kiting charges was check kiting. I'm assuming pass and fake checks. Check fraud. Right. Right. Several months later, while released on bail, Rackstraw attempted to fake his own death by radioing a false Mayday call and telling controllers that he was bailing out of a rented plane over Monterey Bay. Well, police later arrested him in Fullerton on an additional charge of forging federal <laughs> pilot certificates. The plane he claimed to have ditched was found, repainted in a nearby hangar. Cooper investigators noted his physical re- resemblance to Cooper composite sketches, although he was only 28 in That's 1971. Not That's not Cooper. Uh, military, already. military parachute training and criminal record, but eliminated him as a suspect in 79 after no direct evidence of his involvement could be found. Mm. <sighs> No, I can tell already that's not Cooper. The Cooper I got in my head, that's not him. Nah, man. Just, just the picture. Smarter. Him. He's smarter than him. Well, right. Definitely wouldn't have. I'm going to fake my own death. Right. Stupidity. By uh, Mayday in, like they wouldn't have found the wreckage. Right. Or no no wreckage. Or no wreckage. Exactly. Be. Come on now. Right. Idiot. Right. 2016, Star reemerged as a suspect in a history program and a book. September 8, 2016, right? right. What was the history program and what was the book? (laughs) Right. September 8, 2016, Thomas Colbert, the author of the book. Betcha the history program was. Oh, no. They'll probably tell us. Anyway, 2016, Rackstar reemerged. We said that. History program and a book. September channel program, by the way. Right. Uh, September 8, 2016, Thomas J. Colbert, the author of the very book. And attorney Mark Zaid filed a lawsuit to compel the FBI to release its Cooper case file under the Freedom of Information Act. Mm-hmm. The suit alleges that the FBI suspended active investigation of the Cooper case in order to undermine the theory that Rackstraw is D.B. Cooper. So as to prevent embarrassment to the Bureau's failure to develop evidence sufficient to prosecute him for the crime. I mean, that's not. We all know the the FBI, the Federal that's not, Bureau that's of not Veterans. far off of what the FBI would do. To be honest with you, so, the uh, FBI that we all came in the know from eighteen eighty <laughs> to now. There was no FBI in eighteen eighty. Well, same thing from Prohibition till now. Yeah, yes, we yeah. we uh, till Prohibition to now. We, the FBI, know how they we came to know, <laughs> yep. especially uh, 
Herbert was still not Herbert. Um, Jay Edgar was still in charge at that time. So the FBI does not have a very good uh, track record, track record right now. So in 2017, Colbert and a group of volunteer investigators uncovered what they believed to be a decades-old parachute strap at an undisclosed location in the Pacific Northwest. Undisclosed. This was followed later in 2017 with a piece of foam suspected of being part of Cooper's parachute. Why backpack. is it undisclosed? Right. I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. That tells you everything you need to know right there. The in January there. 2018, Tom and Donna Colbert reported that they had obtained a confession letter originally written in December of 1971 containing codes that matched three units Rackstraw was a part of while in the Army. They charged that the FBI refused to acknowledge the findings because it would have they would have to admit that amateur sleuths had cracked a case that the Bureau couldn't. I, I mean, I do believe that. Maybe. But. I do believe that, dude. The FBI would do some shit like that. Tell me they wouldn't. Yeah, but they tell me still, they wouldn't. They'll try to way to figure out to spin it where they can be the the solve or, that case. Do they want if them to they were solve smart, that case? They would have been, like, been like, "Oh, look at the evidence we just found." Right, as I'm saying, if it was actually a case, they would have been like, "Yeah, we." But need they it. couldn't find that because clearly these guys had it in their possession. So it's not like that. Look at the evidence we found. If they they're the only ones that have the, the FBI, they they wouldn't murder them <laughs> for this case. <laughs> That's true. Come on, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they're too public. One of the flight 305 flight attendants reportedly. Did not find any similarities between photos of Rex Straw in the 1970s. And I we don't believe, care about one of them. We care about Muckrow uh, and um, Schaefer. And I would believe flight attendants if we get more than just one. And what was one of them? I, I like no. Did Muckrow or Schaefer? They said one. I don't like Mucklow, that. or I mean, when Mucklow. they say one, that means a flight attendant that was working that day. I don't maybe, give a shit. Maybe not on that. There's plane. only two that we know that spoke to him directly and uh, had any contact with him. Did those two re- recognize him, and did they picture him? Well, we don't say that's what I want to know. It's just this one. Well, it was the one that was all the way back. Clearly, it wasn't Schaffer, and clearly, it wasn't Muck. No, it was the one back in coach, right? And if he, if they did see him, it was on the way of leaving the plane from the back of the plane, yeah, right? Some guy with sunglasses on. on. So, how are we supposed to believe her? Right, get the hell out of here. (laughs) (laughs) And to her recollection, uh, that looked like Cooper said it didn't, did, did not find any similarities, did she did find some. No, she did not. Sorry. Sorry. Did not find any similarities. Miscusi. Right. Did not find any similarities. Right. Right. So uh, one flight attendant. Besides, this is is between photos of Rackstraw from the 70s and her recollection of Cooper's appearance. So they're probably asking her decades afterwards because they're showing her pictures of the guy from the 70s. So this is clearly. One of the flight attendants probably did not. Reportedly, did not find any similarities between photos right. of Rex. This is in 2018 and stuff. So, right, and her recollection of Cooper's parents. recollection mm. 30, 40 years right. ago. So, I mean, how do how do we know anyway? Right, Rex Straw's attorney called the renewed allegations the stupidest thing he's ever heard. So he's denying it though. Why would he not just take credit for it? Whatever. Right. And Rex Straw himself <laughs> told People.com it's a lot of bullshit, bullshit. and they know it is. Is <laughs> I gotta say, it, yeah, because it's a quote, right? Right, it's a lot of bullshit, and they know it is. The FBI declined further comment. And you, oh, okay. So, Rackstraw, we know when the FBI doesn't want to do something, then right. maybe we're on to something, yeah. right? Rackstraw stated 2017 phone interview that he lost his job over the 2016 investigation. Wow, I told everybody I was the hijacker. He said, I told him, I told him, hey, it's me, guys, I'm DB Cooper. Rackstraw told Colbert before explaining the admission was a stunt. He died tragically in 2019. <laughs> Maybe it was him and the FBI killed him. <laughs> right, dude. Like, what is going on? There's... So he did all this and then his picture don't look anything like nothing. 
and they weren't even going to charge him. Too young, and they weren't even going to charge him with anything now, right? No, he was only I don't know. He was only twenty eight in nineteen seventy one though, and the guy said they looked like his mid forties. That guy right there at twenty eight does not look like a mid forties. No, he looks like he's twenty eight. Right. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe it was just a big old ruse. Well, at least our Walter R. Recca from 1933 to 2014 is when he lived. He was a Michigan native military veteran and original member of the Michigan parachute team. Hey. He was proposed as a suspect by his friend, Carl Lauren at a press conference on May was 17th. Was he his friend? Right. The friend should be in quotation marks. <laughs> well, he was already dead. It was at a press conference on May 17th, 2018. Mm. Uh, in 2008, Recca told Lauren via a recorded phone call or recorded oh. that he was the hijacker. Uh, he's out of nowhere i guess well he gave lauren permission in a notarized letter to share his story after his death why didn't he do it soon yeah but four years again dude that seems more credible right traveled somewhere else right. that he wouldn't be like in his own area i want to hear this uh, he also allowed lauren to tape their phone conversations about the crime over a six-week period in late 2008 in over three hours of recordings Recca shared details about the hijacking before they were publicly known Oh, he also confessed to his niece, Lisa's story. So he's sharing details that weren't publicly known at the time. So right. how would he known? Mm. Mm. Do we got something here? Okay. 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 From Rekka's description of the terrain on his way to the drop zone, Lauren concluded that he landed near Clay Elum, Washington. After Rekka described an encounter with a dump truck rev- driver at a roadside cafe after he landed, Lauren located Jeff Osiadax. Osea- who was driving his dump truck near Clee Alum at the night of November 24, 1971, and met a stranger at the Tianaway Junction Cafe just outside of town. Okay. The man asked Osea Dax to give his friend directions to the cafe over the phone, and he complied. I remember this from the um, right. Expedition Unknown that I watched. Yeah, okay. they, they investigated this. Record reportedly confirmed that Osea Dax was the man at the cafe after seeing a photo Lauren sent him. He's like, yeah, I, I see that guy. All right. According to Lauren, Joe Koenig, Koenig, Koenig? Yeah. Uh, Joe Koenig, a forensic investigator, found no evidence of tampering or manipulation and no discrepancies from, avail- from, uh, yeah, from available FBI records that eliminated Rekka as a suspect. Okay. Oh, okay. Koenig later published a book on Cooper titled Getting the Truth. I am D.B. Cooper. So the FBI hasn't even... They have not uh, dismissed him as a uh, suspect. Is that's what I'm getting from that? That's what I thought as well. Um, independent observers who have noted that Clee Elum is well north and east. That's what we were just saying. Right. A flight 305's known, known flight path more than 150 miles north of the drop zone assumed by most experts. Right. And even further from Tina Barr where Way the money was. Further. We were just talking about that. They also point out that Rekka, who died in 2014, was a military paratrooper and a private skydiver with hundreds of jumps to his credit. A direct contradiction to the FBI's publicized profile. Right. Uh, in response to the allegations against Rekka, the FBI said it would be inappropriate to comment on specific tips to all oh, provided to them, and that no evidence today has proved the culpability of any suspect beyond a reasonable doubt. So right. now, all these other suspects, though they publicly said right. that they're, they're not, that he wasn't a, a they're suspect, not, they're not pursuing him anymore. And they're not pursuing him, and they, right. he's not, or he's been dismissed as a suspect. Right. Now they can't. It'd be inappropriate to comment. You commented it before, FBI. Mm. And this was even, they commented on the guy that died in 2021. Mm. And this guy was in 2014. Right. Mm. I don't know. We're going to have to keep an eye on, oh, Mr. Uh, 
That was his name, William Walter Recca. Walter Recca. Walter Recca. Still alive? Uh, no, he died in 2014. Well, we just established nah, that. They, they, I wasn't listening. Sorry. <laughs> he wasn't listening, even though you read <laughs> half of it. All right. William J. Smith, our next wrong subject, November 2018. The Organian published an article proposing William J. Smith, 1928, 2018, what's his life, of Bloomfield, New Jersey. They're like, this guy's a suspect. He is. The article was based on research well, conducted. You think he was dressing black. Oh, he was dressing black. The dude's name Will Smith. And he's dressed in black. Dressing black. black. Mm. And, and he, he became Agent J. Book. And he became Agent J. Smith. <laughs> yeah. Dude. What is up with that? Whoa. Oh, look at this. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Army data analyst who sent his findings to the FBI in mid 2018. Smith, a New Jersey native, the, was a World the War II veteran. The article was based on a research conducted by an Army data al- analyst. Right. Right. You right. didn't say that. Oh, well, I forgot that. You <laughs> <laughs> sent his findings to the FBI. Right. The, the article. Right. Well, his findings. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Smith, a New Jersey native. That was that. Yep. World War II veteran. After high school, he enlisted into the Navy and volunteered for combat air crew training after his discharge. He worked for the Lehigh Valley Railroad. He's like, well, I'm going to screw the air. I'm going to go with where the train tracks are set. <laughs> yeah, we're good to and go here. Like, and then he's like, why can't trains just have like off-road tires and they just go everywhere? <laughs> yeah, all right. How come? Yeah, right. Throw back to our conversation of last, last yeah. episode that yeah. you clearly don't remember. Right, right. <laughs> and he was also affected by the Penn Central Transportation Company bankruptcy in 1970. Ooh, that sucks. The largest bankruptcy in the United States history. At that time. At this time. Oh. So the, the Penn State, yeah, Penn State, yeah, Penn Station, dude. Yeah, okay, yeah. The article, that mm. article proposed that the loss of his pension created a grudge against the corporate establishment and transportation field. There goes the grudge. Oh, he said, I just have a grudge, not against your airline, grudge, but I got a grudge. Airline. It was also create it also created a sudden need for money. Okay. He was forty he was forty three at the time of the hijacking. In Smith's high school yearbook, a list of alumni killed in World War II lists in Ira Daniel Cooper. Uh, possibly the source for the hijacker pseudonym. I no, doubt it. Stupid. The analyst from his high school <laughs> from his stupid. high school, though, so he would have known him, I would assume, right? They were both in World War II and from the same high school, so he would have known him, I'm assuming. Mm. The analysts claim that Smith's naval aviation experience would have given him knowledge of planes and parachutes, and his railroad experience would have helped him find railroad tracks and actually, hop on a train to escape the area after landing. But actually, how would he know that a train was coming? He right said there? his name was Dan Cooper. So I'm saying that's what right. they're trying to get at right there. Right. Dan Cooper. <laughs> According to the analysts, aluminum spiral chips found on the clip on tie could have come from a locomotive maintenance facility. Smith, Here we go, another right. Um, could have, could have, could have. Smith's information about the Seattle area may have come from his close friend Dan Clare, may have, hmm. who was stationed at Fort Lewis during the World War II. The analyst noted that the man who claimed to be Cooper in Max Gunther's 1985 book identified himself as Dan LeClaire. Smith and Clare worked together in Conrail in New York and Newark. In New York. <laughs> in Newark, New Jersey, at Oak Island Yard. Everybody from Newark, 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 man. Everybody from Newark knows about Oak Island Yard, right? I would hope so. Smith retired from that facility as a yard master. Oh, he was a master of the yard. Of the yard. The article noted that a picture of Smith on the Lehigh Valley Railroad website showed a remarkable resemblance to Cooper's 
uh, FBI sketches. The FBI said that it would be inappropriate to comment on tips related to Smith. Which means they were actively looking at him. We they never ruled. Right. So, so far, they have not ruled out William J. Smith or um, Walter Recca. But then it isn't this case, and it hasn't always been, even till now, uh, public, open to the public? Well, now it is, yeah. But when this... Even was then now. No. I think it just happened in like 2018 or something was when oh, they opened was it this? to the public. Oh, it was 95. He died in 2018. Mm, I think we had information before that. I don't know. They're saying it's inappropriate to comment on tips related to Smith. And they wouldn't, uh, it was inappropriate to comment on Rekka too. So there's the other, all the ones we've read so far, they ruled out officially. All right. These, the last two, they haven't. So. Dwayne L. Weber, our last uh, in a long list of subjects, suspects, 1924 to 1995, was a World War II veteran. See, these World War II guys are the ones I'm leaning on. The Vietnam War, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, He was a World War II Army veteran who served time in at least six prisons from 1945 to 68 for burglary and forgery. Mm-hmm. He was proposed as a suspect by his widow, based primarily on a deathbed confession. <clears throat> he said three days, he, three days before he died in 1995, Weber told his wife, Joe, I am Dan Cooper. (laughs) The name meant nothing to her, she said. But months later, a friend told her of its significance in the hijacking. She went to her local library to research D.B. Cooper, found Max Gunther's book, and discovered notations in the margins in her husband's handwriting. Uh Uh-oh. Like the hijacker, Weber drank bourbon and chain-smoked. Other circumstantial evidence included a 1979 trip to Seattle and the Columbia River. But it took place in 1971. So what does a 1979 trip to Seattle and the Columbia River have? Unless he went there to try to find the money. Because he lost it. The money that was lost. I don't know if he went eight years later. Right. I don't know. Himbo's back said Weber does does fit the physical description. And he does have the criminal background that I have always felt was associated with this case. But did not believe he was Cooper. (laughs) He's like, man, but... Not him. So you know what we're going to do? He is eliminated. Eliminated. He is eliminated as an active suspect as of July 1998, when his fingerprints did not match any of those processed in a hijacked plane. Okay. And no other direct evidence could be found to implicate him. Later on, his DNA also failed to match the samples recovered from Cooper's tie. Well, it ain't Weber. And so far, like I said, the only two that they've not... Why would a guy lie on his deathbed, though? He could have been Dan Cooper. He said he was Dan Cooper. He just said he was Dan Cooper. He didn't right. say he was D.B. Cooper. Right. Right. Well, Dan Cooper's out there. Right. And he was living a double life. Maybe, just maybe he to... just said, maybe, yeah, maybe his name was Dan Cooper. And, like, uh, he was lying about his identity, but not that D.B. Cooper, you know? Right. He was just, you know. Right. You just happened to, you just happened to catch all the people that are lying about themselves. <laughs> Jeez living double lives and chip right get the hell out of here so far yeah only two of these suspects the fbi has not officially ruled out and those two i don't believe i don't know Rekka's was pretty uh that's close but pretty pretty believable it's but close but not i don't know that's close but not i don't think so don't that's know. the closest it is the closest but i'm still know. skeptical well Similar hijackings, kind of like backpacking or backpacking, <laughs> backpacking off of this. Cooper was not the first attempt to air piracy in a personal gain. Uh, in early November of 1971, just a couple of days 
before that, right. a Canadian man named Paul Joseph Cini hijacked an Air Canada DC-8 over Montana, but was overpowered by the crew when he put down a shotgun to strap on the parachute he had brought with him. Oh, what an idiot. Dummy. Cooper's apparent success inspired a flurry of imitators, mostly during 1972. Some notable examples from that year. Garrett Brock Trapnell hijacked a TWA airliner en route from L.A. to New York. On January 28th, he demanded $306,800 in cash. Man, that's that's specific. very specific. <laughs> right. Uh, the release of Angela Davis Uh-oh. and an audience with President Richard Nixon after the aircraft landed at JFK International. He was shot and wounded by FBI agents and arrested. Who's Angela Davis? Angela Davis is American political active. Oh, that's why I have political, uh, right. political motives. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Get it. That was what year? That was in 72. That makes sense. Then we get Richard Charles LaPointe. He was an Army veteran and New England beach bum. A little beach bum. And right. how, how could you be an New England beach bum? You right. know, what are you, are you a bum three three months right. out of the year? <laughs> right. Uh, well, the 20th of January, he decided he was going to board the Hughes Air West Flight 800 at McCarran Airport in Las Vegas. He was brandishing what he claimed was a bomb while the DC-9 well, was on the taxiway. Did he give the, the flight a pen and a uh, note? Right. He demanded $50,000 two parachutes, and a helmet. And it was still on a taxiway. What an idiot. And $50,000. Right. The same year, 71? 72. 72. After releasing the five, five, five one, after releasing the five one, <laughs> after releasing the 51 passengers and two five flight one, attendants, boom, boom. he ordered the plane on an eastward trajectory toward Denver. He said, I want to go to Denver. And he bailed out over uh, the treeless plains of northeastern I mean, Colorado. That would be the way to do it. All right. Authorities tracking the locator equipped parachute. Idiots. <laughs> and his front prints in the snow oh, and mud. Oh, jeez. Well, apprehended him a few hours later. What an idiot. Then it leads us to another McCoy named Richard Dick McCoy, former Army Green Beret, hijacked a United Airlines 727 100 on April 7th uh, of 72 after it left in Denver. What is up with Denver? Right. Uh, diverted it to San Francisco, then bailed out over Utah with $500,000 in ransom money. Wow. He landed safely, but was arrested two days later. Oh, you idiot. You could have got away. Could have got away, but he stayed in the area. $500,000 here. That's over a million then. That's close to like two, two point something. Right. Yeah. Wow. Because the 200000 was $1.3 million yeah. in 71. Yeah, this stupid idiot. What an idiot. Stupid. Idiot. Idiot. Stupid Richard McCoy Jr. I hope stupid. all your family failed from all till now. Stupid, <laughs> stupid dick. I hope they're all failures. <laughs> Frederick Hahnemann used a, a handgun to hijack. How do you, how do people get handguns on a plane? Impossible. To hijack an Eastern Airlines 727 in Allentown, Pennsylvania on May 7th of 72, demanded 303000 <laughs> What is up with that? And eventually parachuted into Honduras. Jeez. What? So this was already going to Honduras. His country of birth. Oh, a month later, the FBI in pursuit with the FBI in pursuit and a twenty-five thousand bounty on his head, he surrendered at the American Embassy Dude. in Teg Tegucigalpa. Yeah, he thought he was gonna be. He, he, that's his problem. He thought he was gonna be great in Honduras. What he should have done it was went to another country. Right. If he wanted to go to Honduras, he should have went he to. Could have went somewhere another, else and then went to Honduras. Idiots. Right. So we're moving on to the next suspect, or well, not? Not suspect. That's suspect no the more. Next. He's, he's uh, Copycatters. Right. Martin McNally. He's an unemployed service station attendant. He used a submachine gun on the 23rd of June to commandeer an American Airlines 727 en route mm. from St. Louis to Tulsa. And he said, it was like, no, we're diverting this plane. Guess where we're going? 
East. East bound and down. Beep, bop, beep, 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 beep. We're going beep, to Indiana, beep, 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 said nobody. <laughs> Indiana. Yep, that's what Martin Nally said. We're going to Indiana, buddy. Well, from St. Louis to Tulsa and then diverted it to Indiana. Right. He was like, guess what? Divert this plane. Doesn't Where? you know that fuel exists? <laughs> like right. You can't just divert it wherever well, you want. Well, he was like, uh, I'm going to bail out here with my $500,000 500 grand. So he bailed out. Well, McNally lost the oh. ransom money. As he exited aircraft, but landed safely near Peru, Indiana, and was apprehended a few days later in Detroit. Jeez, this dude was just everywhere, wasn't he? What an idiot. Well, 15 hijackings similar to Cooper's all unsuccessful were attempted in 1972. Wow. With the advent of universal luggage searches. Dang, he set off a freaking uh, a TikTok trend. What do they call it? It's the TikTok hijack challenge, baby. But with the advent of universal luggage searches in 1973, it took a whole two years. Right. So like, hey, we should probably search these people's <laughs> luggage. Uh, the general Idiots. incidence of hijackings dropped dramatically. Well, no shit. Right. There were no further notable Cooper imitators until July 11th of 1980. Oh. When Glenn K. Tripp sees Northwest Flight 608 at Seattle, Tacoma. Oh, right. Right oh. in the same area. Demanding 600 grand. Or 100,000 by an independent account. <laughs> That's a hell of a discrepancy there. Right. Uh, two parachutes and the assassination of his boss. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Damn. <laughs> whoa. No, don't oh, worry that I want. Wait a minute. Hey, $600,000 is cool and all, but <laughs> I mean, like, I can give you two like, parachutes. If you want 10 parachutes, I'll give you 10 parachutes. But like, dude, we're not going to assassinate your boss. <laughs> ah, Holy shit. I want to see it. The murder of my boss uh, right on the tarmac. Right. Right, right on the right tire, man. So actually, I want I want you to I want you to throw him into the jet engine. That's what I want you to do. Oh my god! Oh, oh my! Hey, quick thinking. Who is this guy? This is uh, Glenn K. Glenn Tripp. Tripp. He was on a trip. That you ain't day. getting. A quick thinking flight attendant secretly drug trips alcoholic beverage with volume. Ooh! After a ten hour standoff during which Tripp reduces demands of three cheeseburgers <laughs> and a ground vehicle in which to escape. <laughs> this dude this dude was high on volume. And he's like, dude, I'm, I'm fucking hungry, dude. He's like, what did I, what did I tell him earlier? <laughs> dude, you want to kill your boss? <laughs> he's like, wait a minute. He's like, oh. I'm just freaking hungry, dude. <laughs> I, just, I, I need three cheeseburgers and a car to escape. Okay? I just want some cheeseburgers and, and a and, car to get out right. of here and go to another restaurant. Sure, they want to know how many. <laughs> Three, three, <laughs> three. Jeez. He was later apprehended. Trip would later, he, oh, Trip would later attempt to hijack the same Northwest flight oh, no. on January twenty first of eighty three, and this time demanded to be flown to Afghanistan. Jeez, <laughs> no, he. This dude wants to refuel fifteen this times. Dude is like the most outrageous, uh, outrageous demands and and uh, ransom history, dude. First, I'll let you assassinate my boss. They're like, Afghanistan. And then go to Afghanistan. What the hell was in Afghanistan? Uh, when the plane oh, landed wow. in Portland, he was shot and killed by FBI. I agents. hope so. Right? Yeah. What I'm idiot. sorry. What an idiot. What an idiot. This guy. Jeez. Afghanistan. <laughs> Three cheeseburgers. Wow. <laughs> That's the stupidest. Wow. The Cooper hijacking marked the beginning of the end for unfettered and unscrutinized commercial airline travel. Right. Well, thank you, Cooper. All right. You're the reason why TSI exists or TSA or whatever the hell they're called right. exists now. Despite the initiation of the federal sky marshal program the f- previous year, 
31 hijackings were committed in the United States airspace in 1972. 70s were crazy for hijacking. 19 of them were were the specific purpose of extorting money, and most of the rest were attempts to reach Cuba. Mm. In 15 of the extortion cases, the hijackers also demanded parachutes. Okay. Obviously, I would expect them all to order parachutes. Right. Well, there was um, unless they had 15, 15 out of the 19. Did, unless so. the, the four had them themselves, right? I mean, early 1973, the FAA began requiring airlines to search all passengers and their bags mm. amid multiple lawsuits charging that the such searches violated the Fourth Amendment. Right. Forfeit and seizures. See, you search and seizures. Search right? and seizures, baby. Federal courts ruled that they were acceptable when applied universally. Right. So they're doing it to everybody. So right. it can't be discrimination or anything right. like that. So, right. You know what? If you're in the airport, I'm not going to check your luggage or anything. But once you cross that little line once right there that you're going to get on my plane, guess what, bud? Checking your luggage. <laughs> yeah. They're like, fair. <laughs> fair. All right. That's fair. Amid multiple lawsuits charging that such searches violated the Fourth Amendment uh, against search and seizure, right. federal courts ruled that they right. were acceptable when a weapon universally, right? And then, and then, uh, and when limited to searches for weapons and explosives, right? Right. Only two hijackings were attempted in 1973, both by psychiatric patients. One hijacker was named Samuel Beak. Was it Beck or Beak? Beck. I think it's Bick. Bike. Or Bick. Bick. Yeah. I think it's Bike or Bick. Right? I think it's Bick. B-Y-C-K. Intended to crash the airliner into the White House. And <laughs> he's like, I want to kill President Nixon. What's your plan? To kill President Nixon? President Nixon. Well, due to multiple copycat hijacksons. <laughs> hijacksons. Jackson's Jackson's fucking Jackson fives were high as Jackson's. There's there's Jackson's and they're all high. Oh, look at I multiple due to multiple copycat hijackings in nineteen seventy two. The FAA required that the exterior of all Boeing seven twenty seven aircraft be fitted with a spring loaded device, later dubbed the Cooper Vane. (laughs) That prevents lowering of the aft air stair during flight. Well, there you go. Come on. The device consists of a flat blade of aluminum mounted on a pivot. The pivot is at the center of the blade. The vein is fastened to the forward end of the blade forward of the pivot and extends away from the fuselage. The long edge of the vein is perpendicular to the blade. <laughs> it's okay. When the airplane is in flight, the force of air pushing against the vein exceeds the resistance of the spring and rotates the vein and blade without the pivot so that the vein becomes parallel with the airflow. <laughs> I don't know what any of this means. <laughs> this this places the portion of the blade <laughs> aft of the pivot over the edge of the air stair and physically blocks the air stair from opening. So they place a, a subject there that stops it from opening. Oh, Lord. Oh, Ruggin. Um, If anybody followed along, good for you. <laughs> but if you're on Patreon, at least you can see an example of it. Right, right here. So like this is on the unlocked position. So this <laughs> yeah. comes over here. Right. This comes over here. Yeah, it's... and locks it so you can't put it open. Uh, obviously, it's a freaking. <laughs> but it's from the. Uh, it's the force of. Right. It was an in-flight. The force of air pushing against the vein. So when you're flighting, this is forcing it here. Right. There's and no then way. it prevents it from opening. Right. Right. So. It's not happening. Right. 
I was like, they didn't have to do that. They just said they put a metal bar over it. Right. Jeez, <laughs> dude. When the airplane is on the ground and the force of the spring is greater than airflow against the vane, the spring rotates the vane perpendicular so to the airflow. We're, st- we're still on the, on the mechanics <laughs> of the damn Cooper vane. And then it pivots the blade away from the edge of the air stay. This allows normal operation of the air stair on the ground. Operation of the vane is automatic and cannot be overridden from within aircraft. Right. As a direct result of the hijacking, the installation of peepholes was mandated <laughs> in all cockpit bathrooms. This enabled <laughs> the crew, <laughs> the crew pit crew, the crew, the cockpit crew to observe passengers without opening the cockpit <laughs> door. <laughs> uh, on April 23rd, 2013, Earl J. Cossey, the owner of the skydiving school that furnished the four parachutes that were given to Cooper, was found dead in his home in Woodenville, which is a suburb of Seattle. His death was ruled a homicide due to blunt force trauma to the head. The perpetrator remains unknown. Some commenters allege possible links to the Cooper case, but authorities respond that they have no reason to believe that any such link exists. I doubt D.B. Cooper was going to go to the, the skydiving place that gave him his parachutes and kill him. Woodenville officials later announced that burglary was most likely the motive. Um, In that ironic, though. Right. Just dies off of murder. That's crazy. Um, Yeah. Given all that we said in this episode, I think there's two suspects that have, have are plausible. Maybe, maybe one, not two. I go Walter Recca, maybe the Rekha. Michigan guy, right? Or the recorded phone call, and he knew stuff of the right. story that weren't publicly known right. yet, right? And the FBI said it's irresponsible, inappropriate to comment on right. specific tips to tips to him, right? And then Will Smith as well, right? Which the FBI a- said the same thing. Agent J, Agent J, and. Dan McClear, Dan Clear. I mean, I mean, we got we got a couple of things. All the rest of them, I think, are bullshit. Just people looking for notoriety and just dumb shit, just to try to get their names out there. For and a lot of them, a, a, a lot of them were like authors and paper guys trying to like backing them up, trying to get their names out there to be popular. And shit. Right. I don't right. believe any of them. No, it's got God. But Recca uh, and uh, William J. Smith. I, I don't know. I can. I mean, <sighs> maybe just Recca. I, I delete Smith. Yeah, Recca. Rekha, for sure, but I don't, I don't know if it's him though. Two of two of those two guys though, FBI right. inappropriate to comment. That right. tells you a lot, right there. That you need to know. Inappropriate. To I comment. guess um, after two parts of DB, where Cooper, is DB Cooper? And did he ever was he ever apprehended, or is he still out there today? That's what I'm saying. Would I, he be out there today? Seventy one. He was forty. Well, for sure, he'd be about eighty something. Maybe like 90. He's in his mid 40s and 71, 81, 91, 2001, 2000. Like 100. 11, 2020. No, he'd be, he'd be like 95. 95-ish, 90s. He was in his 40s when it happened. If he's still alive now. All right. Right. Um, yeah, but through two parts of D.B. Cooper, we're just as confused as we were heading into this. Just Nobody like, knows. Just like the whole country and whole world Nobody that has knows. ever heard of D.B. Cooper. And I think... I think it's one of those things that's everybody has their own. Well, that and I, it's legitimately going to stay unsolved and not ever uh, exposed forever. Never. And it's I guess like the 2020 elections. <laughs> and with that being said, I guess we'll leave it right there. And uh, you guys want to hear this episode on <laughs> or see this episode with a, with a lot more BS oh in this episode um, on Jeez. Patreon in video unedited. Patreon.com forward slash bang dang. 
We will be back next week for, we're not really sure yet on this episode of Outlaws and Gunslingers, but we will be back next week. You mark my words on that one. We're the Mouth of Michiganders with Bang Dang. <laughs>